Morning, Grace. Our passage today is from John eleven forty-five to 54. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also together into one of the, into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to, to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Hello. Um, usually when I go off the manuscript, it ends in talking too long or saying something that's probably true, but more like a junior higher would say it. So I'm going to risk both those things right now to say, with all the sound problems we've had lately, it just strikes me as a metaphor for the Christian life. We mean well. We're going after it the best that we've got. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, or so it seems, in comes some temptation or sin or difficulty or trial or trouble. And it just seems to overwhelm. But God is God over all of it. Amen? Amen. Can any of you kids, kids, uh, if you need help deciding whether you are one, just ask the person next to you. But... Kids, I got a question for you. Do you remember, do any of you remember the main, the main reason that John tells us that he wrote his gospel? Any of you remember that? And for bonus points, do any of you remember where he tells us what his main point is in writing his gospel? It's John 20, verses 30 and 31. We're probably a number of months away from getting there, but if you've been here throughout, John, we've I started with this, started with the end, and I've tried to keep that in front of us throughout our time in it. So it says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs. So John wrote about a lot of the signs, including one we just saw, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And at the end of all this, of all the signs he planned to tell, he said, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, the ones he did choose to include, meaning he knows of more, but chose to include some. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so as we keep moving through, John, we're over halfway now. As we keep moving through this gospel and consider the different stories that he shares with us about Jesus, what he said and did and what was done to him according to the Father's will, let's keep in mind that the primary application of all of this is to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the primary application. But as passages like this one remind us, let us also remember that believing that Jesus is the Christ 
has implications for every aspect of our lives, every corner of the universe, and every pocket of society. It's not merely an intellectual idea. It's not something we merely assent to in theory, but it sends reverberations to every part of our being and existence and to every corner of this universe. The beginning of the Lord of the Rings movie when they cut the finger off the dude and you see that that sweeps across the world, that's this. This is that. That's why good fiction is good, because it gives us a picture for this kind of thing. The Christness of Jesus reaches every corner of existence. In other words, believing that Jesus is the Christ has countless practical implications. As I've said before, and I'll say again many times, Lord willing, in the same way that if you believed right now that this room was on fire, in the same way, but more so, Say, hey, this room's on fire. And you say, that's right, Pastor Dave, amen. But you just keep sitting there. Do you really believe that? And the answer is, you don't. In the same way that truly believing this room is on fire means taking action. You don't really believe it if it doesn't change what you do. Truly believing that Jesus is the Christ necessitates certain actions as well, given to us, told to us, revealed to us by God. John helps us in all Three of these ways. God helps us in this passage and in this gospel in each of these ways. Knowing that Jesus is the Christ, knowing what it means that Jesus is the Christ, and knowing how we ought to respond to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. So I invite you, Grace, again, I don't know, maybe this is the 20th time in our time in John, but I invite you to be in continual prayer that the Spirit would work all of these things, that the Spirit would be pleased to work all of that in us in increasing measure as we continue to work through John. That said, as he has also consistently done in our passage for this morning, I want you to hear this, like really, really hear this. And hopefully the sound system doesn't do do its thing. But if you're dozing off, maybe I do hope it does. It's too early in the sermon for that. Hang on. It's critical. It's critical. John, we got to see this. John describes the response of those who witness Jesus' miracle more than he describes the miracle. We don't even, there's nothing, like nobody interviews Lazarus. Wouldn't you want to do that? Like, hey, talk to me about what just went down. I mean, that's what I would want to do, but John doesn't, and maybe they did, but John doesn't record any of that. He talks more about the reaction that Jesus gets to the things he does and says than the things themselves oftentimes. That's a big deal. And it calls us to consider our own reaction to the things that the Word of God teaches, to the things that we see that Christ has done and hear that he has said. As his purpose statement indicates, John's purpose statement, which I just read in John 20, he's concerned, as concerned, with how people respond to Jesus as he is with how Jesus, how Jesus engaged the people in the first place. He's not just concerned with the information you get in your brain and whether your doctrine is more sound than it used to be. He's concerned with that, but as concerned with how that works itself out in your lives, in my life. So we're told, therefore, how many of the Jews reacted to Lazarus's resurrection. Some believed and some didn't. Those who didn't decided to go and tell the religious leaders. Most of the religious leaders were knowingly confused. They were confused, and they knew they were confused. One, however, one of the religious leaders had a measure 
of misguided insight. The depth of the insight was profound. and I'm eager to help you to see that. He was entirely misguided in what it meant. And as a result, we'll see, Jesus laid low until he would come into town to be crucified. The big idea of this passage is that by believing in Jesus, we gain everything by giving up everything. And the main takeaway is that each of us, you and I would all, take a fresh count of the cost of following Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for Pastor Mike reminding us that insofar as our hope is in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, our sins have already been forgiven. And that we are free to walk in newness of life and all that that means according to your word. We don't make that up, but you tell us what you require of us. Your word is sufficient for life and godliness. But also, it is, again, as Pastor Mike said, the good news that if we have not yet done that, if our hope is not yet in you, if we don't even know what that means yet, today can be the day of salvation. You don't require a pilgrimage of us or the keeping of a certain number of laws or keeping them to a certain degree for a certain amount of time before you will forgive us in Christ. It is in his merit and not ours. And in this passage, we get another glimpse of that. We get a glimpse of the blinding effects of sin, but the greater grace of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we see that. May we be transformed by that. May we live increasingly in every way in light of that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So when we read our Bibles, we need to do so prayerfully. We will never understand or appreciate it apart from the Spirit's help. Settle on that. Read your Bible, but read it prayerfully, knowing you need the Spirit's help to make sense of it. We also need to read it thoughtfully. We need to have our brains engaged as we seek to make sense of what the author intended to communicate and how that fits in with the larger story of the Bible. John doesn't exist all by itself. John exists as one of 66 books, all of which collectively tell us the story that God means us to have and that we need to live as God intends. All of the Old and all of the New Testaments, we need to get the full story. And also, we need, to le- we need to read it personally. And what I mean by that, I'm not sure if that's exactly the right word, but what I mean by that is that we need to imagine ourselves. If, if we're really going to grasp the story in a way that is transformative, we need to imagine ourselves in the story and in the place of the readers. It's part of how we make the most sense of the passages we read. And so along those lines, I imagine your, you to... A, in, I I invite you to imagine yourself having just witnessed Jesus bringing a man back to life after he had been dead for four days. You don't have to picture the exact person that might have been dead for four days, but just imagine someone that you know and care about deeply has been died and four days has passed and you've decided that at this point all hope is lost and then bam, dude comes back alive. All right, so here, here's the questions. How do you think you'd respond? What would you do? What would you not do? What would you say or not say? Would you, would you tell somebody or would you be shocked, speechless? Would you try to question the guy who did it? Would, would you, I mean, I can just personally, if you know me, you know, I ask a lot of questions. And so, man, Jesus, let's talk. Let's, I gotta, I gotta get my head around this. This is, this is different. What would you do? Well, John records four main responses, four things that happened in particular among four different groups of people in light of Lazarus having been raised from the dead. First, and most understandably for me, 
John tells us that some of the witnesses to Lazarus's resurrections believed in Jesus. Go figure, right? He brought a man back to life and they believed him. That's, 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 that seems wise. Many of the Jews, therefore, verse 45, who had come with, with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. We're right, I think, to wonder how anyone could respond in any other way. He didn't do a card trick. You know, is this your card, seven of hearts? That's not, I mean, that's cool, but that's not this. How is it even possible to witness someone with the power to raise someone from the dead and not believe they are who they say they are? Especially when you stack that on top of all the other things Jesus had said and done. How could they not believe? And yet, especially if you're new to us at Grace Church and new with us in John's Gospel, as we've seen several times already, witnessing Jesus' miracles, his presence, his person, his teaching, or even, remember we saw this, even being the object of Jesus' miracles does not have any direct connection to believing in Jesus. That's staggering, at least to me. What's more, we've also seen that believing in Jesus, and if you had the manuscript in front of you, you'd see that there was a little b, little b believing in Jesus, and believing in Jesus, big b believing, are not the same thing. There is belief, and do you remember what we've called it? There is belief, and there is unbelieving belief. Two different Two different things. Genuine Holy Spirit-enabled belief is the conduit through which, by which, the Father has determined to convey to us his saving and sanctifying grace. That's a big deal. Unbelieving belief, however, is entirely useless. Nothing, nothing good. None of the grace of God can flow through that. Unlike ordinary belief, I'm sorry, unlike ordinary unbelief, it's harder to detect unbelieving belief in ourselves and in others. It looks a lot like genuine belief. I mean, if someone just says, I don't believe in Jesus, that's that's easy, right? If someone says, I believe in Jesus, but nothing in their life shows that they even understand what that means, much less that they actually believe it, the person sitting in the room in spite of saying they believe that it's on fire, it looks like genuine belief, but it's different on the most fundamental level. It's imposter belief, unbelieving belief is imposter belief. It's a veneer of belief. It's hollow belief. It is impressed by some aspect of Jesus or his teaching, what he did, is, or or said, but it falls short of the kind of belief, trust, faith, that God calls for. It is the kind of belief that accepts some of Jesus Christness, or likes the idea of it, but not all of it. It is a pick-and-choose kind of belief. And again, it is useless. It is not sufficient by God's design to carry the grace of God. John has taught us to always, always be on the lookout for this type of imposter belief in ourselves and in others. He has taught us to be careful of mistaking unbelieving belief for the real thing. Many in John's gospel, again, if you're new, you need to hear this. Many in John's gospel who believed, lowercase b, believed initially, or that it is said that they believed initially, usually witnesses to one of Jesus' miracles or those who saw him teaching something profound end up tur- ended up turning away from Jesus once the cost of following him got too high for their liking. That is, once what it meant, what it truly meant to truly believe in Jesus became clear, it became evident that they didn't truly believe in Jesus, even though they believed that they did previously and maybe gave some measure of outward sign of that. 
Therein they demonstrated the inauthenticity of their initial belief. John does not explicitly tell us what kind of belief this people had in response to seeing Lazarus raised from the dead. He uses the same language that he's used in the past to describe the belief of both genuine believers and unbelieving believers. But the upshot of all of this for you and I is twofold and familiar. First, we need to carefully examine our belief continually. That's what Paul means when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. At least it's part of it. It is proved genuine grace. Your belief, you need to ask yourself, is my hope really in Christ? How am I saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But how do I know if my faith is genuine? Again, two particular pieces of evidence. Not intensity of feeling or any particular experience, but by perseverance and fruitfulness. Where genuine belief is present, it will continue on. It will not fade away as life gets harder. It will continue on and it will produce increasingly good fruit. That is because genuine belief is always produced and empowered and kept by the Holy Spirit of God. The second upshot for us is that this is also a warning against building a ministry around the kind of altar call approach that was so popular for so long. We need to proclaim Christ. We need to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, and we need to call people to respond to it And it is good to do so, both with individuals and perhaps groups, even large groups. All of those things are good. But our aim is not professions of faith. It is followers, disciples of Jesus, who are eager to trust in Jesus and obey all of his commands according to his great commission. So none of this should make us inherently skeptical, cynical people when someone claims to be trusting in Jesus. But it should turn our prayers and our actions quickly towards discipleship. Where genuine belief is present, it needs to be, again, by God's design, nurtured and cared for, ultimately by the Holy Spirit, but also by the people of God. It needs to be shepherded and intended. Grace, I urge you, therefore, to learn about and make use of the discipleship tracks that we have here. If you don't know what that means, talk to Pastor Mike, talk to me, talk to one of the elders. But we have discipleship tracks that we've designed to help you take others through this. And here's what will happen. As we continue to put the commands of Jesus in front of people who claim to believe, either that will become life, doesn't mean it'll be easy, and it doesn't mean you'll keep it perfectly every time, but either it will become life to you, it'll become joy to you, it'll become sweet to you, or it'll become so heavy you can no longer bear the burden of Christ's commands. Take a look at our discipleship tracks. They're meant to help you to do that. They're intended to help you obey Jesus' great commission and help people understand the true nature of belief as you walk with them through it. You don't have to be an advanced Christian to do this. The track itself is easy to follow and guide you through this. You just need to be faithful and trust that God will use that. So we don't know the nature of the belief of the many Jews in verse 45, but it is good to thank God for the spark of faith that Jesus' miracle produced in them and remain hopeful that it grew into something mature and bright and persevering, even as we do when anyone makes a profession of faith. That ought to be our disposition today as well. Second, second group. When we're confronted with the claims of Jesus, there is genuine belief, unbelieving belief, and outright unbelief. John tells us that many fell into one of the first two categories, even though we're not sure which, But he also tells us that some fell into the third category, genuine unbelief. 
The text doesn't explicitly tell us that, but it clearly implies it. John describes the second group in contrast with the first. There were those who believed who were with Mary, but, verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. John doesn't tell us exactly why this second group felt the need to go to the Pharisees and tell them. Perhaps like the parents of the blind man that Jesus had healed in chapter 9, they were simply afraid of being put out of the synagogue for not reporting such a thing. Perhaps it was because they genuinely believed this was a matter for the Pharisees to handle. Or perhaps for some reason altogether different. But regardless, John makes it clear that doing so was the result of the fact that they didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ. They didn't believe that Jesus' miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead was from God. Again, we're left with the question of how is this possible? How could people see what this group had just seen and not truly believe in Jesus? This is a big theme for John. He highlights it over and over and over and over again so that we don't miss it. And his consistent answer is that sin's blinding power, you've heard me say this several times in the last several months, but John keeps putting it in front of us on purpose. Sin's blinding power is so thorough that nothing beside the regenerating power of God can overcome it. Their truly grace is nothing in heaven or on earth that can open our eyes to see Jesus for who who he truly is other than God himself. There is no argument persuasive enough. So read your books on apologetics. Learn the philosophical and scientific arguments about the Christness of Christ. But know that you can't dial that in enough to open someone's eyes. There's no argument persuasive enough. As Jesus shows us, no miracle spectacular enough. No love from us that can be deep enough. No sacrifice that you and I could make sacrificial enough. No experience powerful enough. No thing beautiful enough. No teaching profound enough to convince us that Jesus is the Christ on our own. God's grace will open our eyes to see what's there, or we will remain dead in our trespasses and sins. And God does so, always and only, through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. It alone, we're told, is the power of God unto salvation. So we must proclaim it continually and boldly and joyfully and hopefully and expectantly. And then we must trust God to use our faithful proclamation as he sees fit. I'm making it a point to say this over and over and over, because John says it over and over and over under the Spirit's guidance. This is a lesson that we must learn and relearn and then be reminded of over and over again. Grace, share Christ, and trust the results to God. Grieve those who respond in unbelief, but rest in the knowledge that God is able to open the eyes of his most hostile opponents the most convicted, unbelieving believers, the most apathetic teenager, the one who's heard and rejected the gospel more than anyone else. Third, the next reported response is that of the Pharisees. Having been told by the unbelievers what Jesus was up to, it tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. All right. After what I just said about the impenetrable blindness of sin, apart from the intervening grace of God, my own reaction to this verse doesn't make sense. I'm admitting that. The way my heart and my mind react to this verse doesn't make sense in spite of my doctrine. Every part of me is overwhelmed by this response. What what do we do? 
He keeps performing miracles in the name of God, the likes of which we have never seen. He turns water into wine. He makes the lame walk. He makes the blind see. He knows our hearts. He speaks with authority never heard before. What do we do? What do we do? (laughs) You fall down at his feet and cry out for mercy and grace. You entrust yourself to him entirely. You hang on his every word. You follow him wherever he goes. You thank God for sending him in love. You worship him with everything you've got. That's what you do. Again, sin's blinding power is complete. When you can't see, you can't see. And boy, could they not see. But if that were not enough, the Pharisees or the the council as a whole name their two greatest fears. Oh my goodness. If they refrained from intervening or if they didn't get their intervention right, they imagined two worst-case scenarios. First, verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Can you imagine the horror? The first worst possible outcome in their minds is that everyone would believe in Jesus. Again, I'm trying hard to remember my doctrine, and I'm trying hard to suppress my sarcastic nature, But in passages like this, it's hard. Sin had taken a hold of all mankind, Grace Church. Through Adam, death reigned. Justice demanded that nothing but eternal destruction awaited every man and woman and child. God sent salvation into the world and offered it to everyone who would receive it, not by performing admirably or accomplishing a list of difficult tasks or feats of strength, but provide, or by proving themselves worthy, but by simply trusting in a saving grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. After witnessing a man raised from the dead, this council couldn't imagine anything worse than this people receiving the grace of the very God they claim to love. Sin is sinful grace. It's blinding, and it leads to the most foolish foolishness. John wants us to see this. Well, what's the second worst possible outcome they can imagine? that the Romans, verse 48, would come and take away both our place and our nation. To take away our place is most likely a reference to the temple. That is, they feared that if things got out of hand among the Jewish people on account of Jesus, the Romans would restrict their access to their place of worship and sacrifice. This would, of course, be a significant blow to the practice of their religion and their way of life. Along with this, the Pharisees also feared that By allowing Jesus to continue unimpeded, the Romans could take away their nation as well. This likely did not mean that they were afraid of being driven out of the land entirely, but rather losing the remaining autonomy they had within it. In addition to being shocked by the disbelief of this people, the blinding effect of sin, in spite of every evidence, there's a few things we don't want to miss in this response. First, this council, it tells us, was the Sanhedrin. It was the Jewish governing body acknowledged by the Romans. They were in charge of almost all aspects of the life of the Jews under Roman oppression. It was mainly made up of the chief priests who were mainly Sadducees. It also consisted, as John makes clear here, of a minority of Pharisees. These two groups were constantly at odds with one another. There was oftentimes hatred. It was very much akin in some ways to the Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. today. The main point, as we'll see in the coming chapters of John's gospel, is that Jesus unites them. Greater than their disdain for one another was fast becoming their disdain for Jesus. That was a remarkable accomplishment. 
Imagine what it would take to unite the parties in the United States today, and this is a version of that. That'll become really significant. Put a placeholder in your mind for that because that becomes really important in John's gospel. Second, there's tremendous irony here. I hope you've already seen it because that means you're listening well. But there's tremendous irony in the council's fear of losing the temple by allowing Jesus to continue. Have you seen it yet? Think back to John chapter 2. Grace, we know, because we've read the rest of John, the crowds would be stirred and the temple would be taken away, but not by the Romans. The actions of these religious leaders, the Jews themselves, would destroy the temple. It would come to pass as Jesus promised. Do you remember? Destroy this temple, he said, and in three days I will raise it up. The temple itself stood in front of them, and they were actively working to destroy it, to destroy him. They continually and completely missed the real thing for the shadow. Third, these verses, along with verse 50, indicate that the council members weren't merely misguided. They thought they were doing what was right for good purposes. It reveals that they weren't worried about the Jewish nation as a whole and whatever displacement or inability this would produce for them to obey God. That's not what their concern was. Much less were they mainly concerned for the glory of God. They were worried primarily about losing their own place and their own place of power and prominence. Their fear was that the Romans would take away our, meaning their own place and nation, and that by doing so, verse 50, by doing, by not doing something now or by doing something wrong now, it would be better for them. The fourth thing to see is that there are significant echoes of Egypt, significant echoes of Exodus in these words. God called the Israelites out of all the nations in order to be blessed by him and to be a light for them. The Jewish people were to trust in God and live according to his commands as a means of showing the world that God is real, God is good, God is greater than all other gods, and obedience to God is the only and surest sure path to blessing. Instead of all of that, though, the Jews loved God's blessings more than they loved God, so they sought sought God's blessings wherever they thought they might be found. In that way, God often became to them throughout redemptive history nothing more than a means to an end. God is the end. He is the goal. But for them, he became a means to the end of good crops and many kids and safety from the nations. God punished them for this disobedience by handing them over to the nations they were supposed to be an example to. Rather than be a light to the Romans and boldly call the Romans out of their darkness, they were oppressed by the Romans. But rather than this leading the Israelites to repentance, it led them to continue to fight to hang on to the scraps that the Romans allowed. Again, this is very much like the Israelites in Exodus, Exodus 16.2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness after they'd been freed miraculously from many, many years of slavery and an increased oppression beyond what the Romans were doing. And the people of Israel said to them, Oh, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with with hunger. Like their ancestors, this council was more worried about losing Roman crumbs than eating at the banquet of God. Do you care, Grace, more about maintaining a certain lifestyle, comfort or ease or wealth, pleasure? 
you care more about maintaining a certain lifestyle or measure of political freedom or social clout than you do about following Jesus? Are you clinging to in any way to any of the crumbs of the world instead of feasting with God? Have you given yourself to the shadows rather than the blessings and the blesser himself? Likewise, are you afraid to speak the truth to the powers that be when they step outside of their God-given role and authority? In love, gentleness, and respect wherever possible, you fear their wrath more than God's? Are you content to go along with the sinful current of the culture rather than speaking the truth and love to it as Jesus did? We see all this in the council's response to what Jesus did in the Romans. Well, the final response recorded by John was that of the high priest, a man named Caiaphas. He had a harsh rebuke for the entire council. And at first, as I read this, I guess that's not true. If I hadn't read it before, it sounds like this might be okay. He said to them, you know nothing at all. That's that's true. They didn't, right? All right, so far so good. Perhaps he saw the folly of their ways and it was about to stop them from making the biggest mistake of all time. So he went on, verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. That's good stuff too, right? At least in a certain sense. Does he get it? It almost seems like he understands what Jesus came to accomplish and is trying to set everyone else straight. Jesus did come to die for this people, his life for theirs. It is better that Jesus would die in our place than for us all to die. But to make sure his readers didn't come to this mistaken conclusion, John clarified in 51 and 52. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, or not for the nation only, but also to gather the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is remarkable. (laughs) What's going on here is truly remarkable. Do you see what this means? There was some sense in which Caiaphas was given a prophetic word from God. It was supernaturally revealed to him that Jesus would die for the nation of Israel and for those, all of those for, to whom the Father had given. That's amazing in its own right. But what is more amazing is how badly he misunderstood what this meant. As the next verse indicates, he understood this to mean that they ought to work to end Jesus' life rather than mournfully rejoice that Jesus came to offer his life freely. He thought that meant they should murder him. (laughs) So, verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus was causing trouble. It's better that we kill him, that we take him out, than allow him to continue to do this, that, that, and the Romans to further oppress us. Again, it's hard to overstate the tragedy of this blunder. The high priest had received a word from the Lord. It was a true word. It was a word of greatest hope for people and love. It was a word of life and salvation, but instead he took it as a divine mandate to put down some troublemaker. He took it as a charge to end Jesus' life so that he couldn't bring the hammer of Rome down upon the Jews, and them in particular. It's really difficult to imagine a more costly mistake. As I mentioned above, we need to be people of the word of God. And to be people of the word of God, I said, means being coming to the word prayerfully and thoughtfully and personally reading the word consistently. But as we see here as well, it also means reading it humbly. At the very least, it means being slow to believe we understand God's word when no one else does. It means, being, it means reading it corporately with the help of brothers and, our brothers and sisters in Christ, near and far and living and dead. 
I don't mean some weirdness. I mean, reading books of people that have passed away that can be good guides to us. And reading the word of God humbly means making sure it is the word we're looking to and not our own impressions and feelings about it or simply the impressions or conclusions of others. Finally, then, with the Passover mere weeks away, the one at which Jesus would die for the nation and also the scattered children of God and the one at which the Sanhedrin would execute the plan they devised here, one at which they had determined to kill him, Jesus withdrew to prepare. That's verse 54. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. The big idea of this passage is that by believing in Jesus, we gain everything by giving up everything. We can't hang on to any of our own and old ways or the ways of this world. We must surrender it all to him. But in so doing, we're given infinitely more in the reconciliation, fellowship, and satisfaction of God. And the main takeaway is to take a fresh count of the costs of following Jesus. Is that the nature of your belief, Grace? Where it is, praise God. Praise God and continue pursuing Jesus in faith. Rejoice in the gospel, the good news that God has provided for you and is providing for you all that it requires of you. Celebrate that. That is a tremendous gift, one that this whole council seems not to have gotten. But where it isn't, where you find that you are like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, who are not willing to give up everything, who weren't even willing to give up the leftovers of their oppressors, to gain eternal and unlimited feast. The feast of the Son of God, be warned. This is for you a blaring warning siren, calling you to consider your own life and destiny. It is a fresh call to cast aside every lesser treasure that is coming between you and the greatest treasure. Look to Jesus. It is good now that we turn to the Lord's table. the beginning of the feast that awaits us. I love that. And as we do, I want to point out a few things. Uh, three three things in the way of s- simple changes to our liturgy. First, we realize, as Pastor Mike said earlier, that uh, we're acknowledging that we've already examined ourselves. That's what the exhortation is for every week. And on communion Sundays, we mean to draw your attention to that again. In other words, we've already examined ourselves during the exhortation and assurance of pardon according to the apostles' command, like Mike read to us. We recognize we don't need to do it again, and, and so we're not. <laughs> Second, in light of the vision we've casted over the past year plus concerning the relationship between membership, baptism, and communion, and our recent decision to amend our Constitution in some ways in that regard to require baptism for membership, You'll notice that we remind you'll notice that we remind you of that. It's very simple, but we want you to see God's intended order. Now let me say this. We are meant to come to faith in Jesus, which and we're baptized as a sign of our inclusion in the family of God. And then we're meant to take part in the meal of the family of God. This is a family meal. And so for all kinds of reasons, that can get out of order. Uh, grace in my own life. I came to faith in Jesus through a parachurch ministry that never emphasized baptism and took part in a church that never emphasized baptism. And so it was years and years and years before that I was taking communion 
before I was baptized as a believer and before I even realized that was a problem or that that was outside of God's design. And so for that reason, without realizing anything was off, it took me a long time to read God's word as I think he means us to read it. So if your hope is in Jesus, we invite you to take part in this meal today. If your hope is in Jesus, if you're trusting in Jesus, if having examined yourself as Pastor Mike called us to at the beginning, and it is clear to you that your hope is in Christ, please take communion today. But if you haven't yet been baptized as a believer, we encourage you to come and speak to one of us so that we can talk to you more about why this order is there and why it is good. Here's the third thing. Uh, with these uh, with these changes, the order of the liturgy is slightly changed. Momentarily, I'm going to read a new, slightly modified invitation. You'll, you'll notice many of the same words. And then I'm going to pray. Immediately after I pray, the ushers are going to start releasing you by row to come up and um, take the bread and the juice and take it back to your seat. That's That part's the same. Um, having already examined ourselves according to Christ's command, we're going to sing. We, we used to do this. But for a while, because we wanted you to use this time to examine yourself, we, we, we weren't singing uh, during this. But having examined ourselves, we're, this is, all that's left is a joyful eating and drinking. And so we're going to sing together even as you come up to get the elements. Once everyone is seated, again, we'll pray together the same corporate prayer we've prayed, and then we'll eat and drink together.